Today's episode of Achievement Oriented is brought to you by The Ringer's new food podcast, House of Carbs. Every week, Joe House brings on special guests to share their knowledge of the food universe. This week, he had Bill Simmons on to talk about the transition from East Coast to West Coast eating. And next week, he brings on culinary rock star David Chang. House will be cooking up a fresh pod every Wednesday. You can subscribe to House of Carbs on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh. On the other line, it's my co-host, Jason Concepcion. Hello. Woo! Let's go. Let's yeah. go. I'm, I can play video games soon. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. I'm <laughs> so happy for you. I know. <laughs> We've got a fun one today. We are going to talk later in this episode about speedrunning and games done quick the latest incarnation of the ultra-successful charity speedrunning event that wrapped up last week. In a few minutes, we're going to talk to Adi Shankar, who executive produced the new Castlevania adaptation for Netflix with the help of a couple of our Ringer colleagues. But before we get into that, I wanted to do a, an Overwatch minute with yeah. you. Because I know you haven't played a whole lot lately because of Thrones, but it sounds like you've chosen the right time to take off from Overwatch because <laughs> everyone is mad and sad. Cecilia D'Anastasio wrote an article about this for yes. Kotaku about how Overwatch's competitive mode is depressing right now. Can you explain? <laughs> I know you've, you've taken a hiatus of sorts, so maybe you've missed the, the worst of it, but what is going on in the Overwatch community? I came back just in time. So for season five of Competitive, they tweaked the formula for SR, which is your score, your rankings, mm -hmm. the ranking system, yeah. um, so that um, when you do your placement matches and the system is you, you play 10 placement matches, either with a group or just on your own with five randoms, and based on how you perform versus an average level character like in the meta and you, how much you win, you are then placed into one of the ranking levels, bronze, silver, gold, all the way up to top 500 in the world and you know grandmaster mm -hmm. right below that. So what they've done is change it so that everybody basically goes into competitive lower than they think think they should be. For instance, I finished last season 2100, so that's like kind of like a mid, like a low platinum player. And when I came, when I finished my competitive matches, I was seven and three, and I came in at like 16 something. And mm -hmm. it was, it, so it was a shock. And the thing that's weird about that is, well, first of all, it, it's just a strange look and it definitely like bums you out. But this, this happened to everyone. So this like everyone got bumped down. So relative to the typical player, are you worse off or no? Uh, it feels like no. But the other thing is that you can progress rather quickly. I'm back up to 22 something now. And that was over, you know, like a six hour John that I did like over one day, just like mm -hmm. going deep into the game with, with a good crew of people. The thing about it, though, is so, so you can progress pretty quickly back up to where you were, but you can only play with people that are within a thousand rank of you. So the possibility that like, let's say, in a, if you don't play for a day, two days and your friends do, that they could progress beyond a score by which you could play with them. And that's like a bummer. 
You know, like mm-hmm. there's nothing really more depressing in Overwatch than going into competitive by yourself because it's just like you, you're just exposed to like the worst um, <laughs> tendencies of, of human beings when they're playing video games. <laughs> yeah. And so in that sense, it's depressing. And, and you combine that with some of the tweaks they've done to the characters where it's a whole new meta. The previous meta was a very tank heavy meta. You'd see a lot of three tank builds. So you'd have these kind of low long fights, just high survivability, just slog it out fights where ultimates were super important, your ultimate ability. And now it's more of a mobile meta where mobile characters are super important and it's like a very dive heavy meta was was like the term. So um, characters that can just kind of shoot out and get behind the first line of an enemy's attack and start attacking those support characters. That's the characters that are that are this meta is weighted towards. And I think that when combined with the change in score it's just like it's just put a lot of people on tilt. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing about that article to me was the scoring system and the way yeah. those points are awarded. Is that something that has changed or is there just a greater focus on that now because everyone is trying to rank up back to where they were? And so they're they're frustrated that these points are being awarded. The status is being conferred because of gold medals and kill death ratio. Right. And since Overwatch is this team-based shooter... Those things might be correlated with how good you are, but there's a lot that they miss. And depending on how unselfish you are as a player, you might be penalized by those systems, even though you are really contributing in, in other ways. Right. That's the second part of why many pe- like people are broadly kind of depressed about Overwatch right now is this video uh, that was put out by Jake Lyon. And it was kind of like an expose of the skill rating system. That showed that it's not necessarily your... Okay, so the way it apparently works is you pick a character, and depending on how you score within your game, compared to an average player playing that same character, that decides how much SR you're going to get. So you may perform really well in a particular game, get a lot of gold medals as Lucio, say. But if you're not contrasted positively with an average Lucio in the meta, you're not going to score as much SR. Mm. Conversely, so if you pick Bastion, which is the the example that they used, you just have a better chance of getting more SR because it's a, a lightly used character and it's likely... Similarly, it's likely that the average character will not have performed as well as, mm. you know, a character that's very heavily used. So that seems to be a pretty big loophole in the rating system. Yeah, right. Is there an easy fix for that? I don't know. We're going to have to talk to Blizzard about that. They've been mum <laughs> on the subject uh, as of yet. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, it's, that's fascinating to me because it's something like where. People draw analogies between esports and basketball or whatever, right. and, and you can look at something like plus minus and you know what happens when a guy's on the court more so than just how many points is he directly scoring. Right. And it's more of a, a holistic measure. So I can see why that would be frustrating if you were being rewarded for the flashy stats that don't always lead to victory. Right. All right. So let's move on to Castlevania. Nice. So we've spent a lot of time talking on the show about bad video game adaptations and how they have gone wrong and whether they will ever go right. 
And today, in a nice change, we get to talk about one that has gone right, that we've enjoyed a lot. It's Castlevania. The first four episodes, the first season, came out last week on Netflix. It's already been renewed for another eight episodes. And we have a, a large Castlevania contingent at The Ringer, it turns out. <laughs> so we needed some help on this one. So we, we called in some Castlevania assistants. We've got Micah Peters, who writes for the site and, and has written about Castlevania for the site. I guess he's maybe our anime specialist on the call. Hello, Micah. Hi, Don. Good. And we also have Matt James, one of our designers at the site, because we figured we needed someone who has actually spent time playing Castlevania. <laughs> Way too much time. <laughs> That's Matt's role. Hey, Matt. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. And we are also joined by the man responsible for Castlevania, or largely responsible for it. He is the executive producer of Castlevania, Adi Shankar. Hey, Adi. How's it going, guys? It's going very well. So congrats on the release and the reception and the renewal and we'll get into specifics about the show and and you're also now you've announced working on an anime of Assassin's Creed with Ubisoft maybe we'll talk a bit about the future of video game adaptations but give us the backstory on Castlevania how did this come together how did Warren Ellis get involved writing the series just give us the origin story oh wow so we're going right into the origin story yes <laughs> I, th I thought the move now was to like not get into the origin story and do kind of like the big superhero <laughs> team up. <laughs> yeah, tell us how your parents were murdered and you were bitten by the spider and, and the whole thing. Yeah, speaking of which, you guys, you guys all saw Homecoming, right? Oh yes, oh, yeah. loved yes. it. Oh yeah, Micah, you Micah, you wrote you wrote about Homecoming. I'm yes, I did. <laughs> did you read was that? Like, that was a lot of words. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I appreciate journalism that's in-depth, like well-thought-out articles. I, I miss that from back in the day with, with like print magazines. I feel like words had more meaning. So I, I, I appreciate any writer who goes in with a level of depth into, into expressing themselves. Oh, well, I'll be pivoting to video any day now. But... <laughs> the pivot to video. <laughs> yeah. What did you think about Homecoming? I dug it. It was amazing. I mean, it was awesome. It was, you know, did you guys watch Ultimate Spider-Man? You heard of Ultimate oh, yeah. Spider-Man? Yes, mm -hmm. absolutely. So for those of you, I guess, who are listening, who, who don't know, we should give them a rundown of what Ultimate Spider-Man is. So like Ultimate, Ultimate Spider-Man is uh, an animated show for kids, but it's got this like almost Family Guy-esque tone to it not goofy though but it's almost like this satirical take on the entire marvel universe told through the lens of spider-man and I, I thought i mean homecoming took the best things from ultimate spider-man and and made this really great peter parker story which we've never got yeah i mean like it was really campy and i like the fact that like the very first scene in it where he's like filming the large scale battle at the at the airport in Berlin from Civil War like through his phone <laughs> like yeah just kind of deconstructing the entire idea of like this is some huge important thing and i mean even the fact that there was no origin story like the origin story was like his friend Ned like harassing him through different periods of school talking about well can you do this can you do that can you do whatever and it's just kind of like deconstructing all the elements that go into like the quintessential superhero movie or whatever. Yeah, and I, I thought the um, the fact that it, it wasn't remember that classic Spider-Man comic book where it was like the mask on the trash can. He's walking away and he's like, "I'm Spider-Man, no more. I'm done." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, like, yeah. that's like an old school, like '80s, mid to late '80s Spider-Man comic. I feel like every movie that came before this 
looked at that and went, oh, that's what Spider-Man's about? <laughs> yeah. It's just like, oh, it's like supposed to be a bummer. It's like yeah. reluctant, this reluctant hero who's like, oh, man. You know, like, yeah, great power comes great responsibility. But it was almost like a light-hearted with great power comes great responsibility, and he wasn't being crushed by the weight of the, the world. I feel like what really made Homecoming dope was Peter Parker really wants to be Spider-Man. Like, this is yeah, the coolest yeah, thing mm-hmm. ever. You yeah. know what I mean? He is that teenage kid who, I mean, it captured the essence of Spider-Man. I mean, Spider-Man was, was a hit because all the other superhero comics back then were like these gods. You know, it's like Superman, yeah. Wonder Woman, Green Lantern. And all of a sudden, it's like, yeah, but Spider-Man's just like you. Like if you had if you had superpowers, you'd wear a dope costume and run around and, and like be awesome. Yeah, I mean like he's just pumped all the time. Yeah. Like even when yeah. he's bummed out, it's it's, yeah. it's it's pretty great. I like, definitely uh, get phone footage of everything he's doing. 100%. <laughs> yeah, I mean on top of that, going back to what you're talking about, like the mask on top of the trash can thing or whatever. Like they set him up really well in in Civil War. Like it wasn't some whole thing where they needed to be sitting in a car looking at each other into his misty eyed uncle and talking about responsibility. It was like he was just sitting on the edge of his bed being like, I don't know, like if bad things happen and you can't do anything about them, but then you have powers and then the bad things happen, they happen because of you. It's like really childish and like, but great at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was put through the millennial filter. Like that's exactly how a millennial today who had superpowers would describe it. Yeah, definitely. It was just it was so like it took that great great power comes great responsibility, which is ultimately a quote from Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, that's that's, that's where they got it. Richard Nixon gave that in a speech, and they were like, and and and, and the writers were like, oh, oh yeah, that's dope. All right. <laughs> That explains why the bad guy is the working man. Right. <laughs> in, in reference to bombing Cambodia illegally. <laughs> so, yeah, it kind of took that Richard Nixon kind of apologizing for all the stuff he was about to do and distilled it down into a young person's voice today. That's why I think the movie was dope, because, you know, I feel like we're here as storytellers to preserve the mythology and to preserve this culture of fandom for a new generation so that they can reinterpret it and tell it differently using the tools of their time. So in what way did you want to reinterpret the the Castlevania story? Was it something that you, when you first started planning this project, did you want to put some specific spin on this or show it in a, a new light? Because from what I've gathered, it diverges from the video games in some significant and, and interesting ways. Well, it's it was definitely like, I thought it was super important to have a villain who was the hero of his or her own story. Mm-hmm. I thought that was super important, especially when you're telling like a dark story, you know, because without a multi-layered villain, you just end up with darkness for the sake of darkness. You know, yeah. one of the things that I really dig about Game of Thrones is like, you're like, well, who's the, who's like the bad guy of Game of Thrones? Well, it really just changes as you get right. to know the people better, right? Like Jamie Lannister, like the more time you spend with him, the more you like relate to him and his and his situation and you see why he is the way he is. It's not like he goes through some like, you know, uh, other than losing his hand, he doesn't really go through some like crazy metamorphosis as much as like he is the same guy in the show now as he was when the show started. It's just you're spending more time with him and you're getting to see his point of view and you realize, oh, in his okay, in his own narrative, he is doing a great job. I want to talk about Lisa and Dracula's meat cute because I think it's one of the more <laughs> like so great, great. <laughs> meat cutes I've ever seen. Yeah, certainly recently, uh, Lisa comes up to Dracula's very foreboding like spaceship castle, 
and just comes in and is like, hi, what's going on? And she's, and then Dracula's like, how about I drain your blood? And she's like, no, actually, no, that sucks. I'm just here to help people and like, and do medicine. And why don't you go outside more? And it was just like, whoa. I am Vlad Dracula Tepesh, and I do not get many visitors. What have you to trade for my knowledge? Lisa from Lupu. Perhaps I could help you relearn some manners. I've crossed the threshold of your home and you haven't offered me a drink or even to take my coat. What if I took a drink from you? It's like, honestly, <laughs> like, like you? having somebody <laughs> just walk into your apartment and be like, mm, I don't like that Led Zeppelin poster yeah. on your wall. You should probably yeah. take that After down. they saw all the impaled bodies in exactly. the front yard. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, why don't you stop impaling people, uh, Vlad? He's like, ah, oh, I, I don't even that do anymore. that anymore. I don't do that anymore. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you called it a meat cute? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, that's the that's the only term that we have for it. I'm not yeah. in the genre of of characters meeting who then fall in love. It's called a meat meat cute. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I, it's like it's, a rom com. It's I, kind of like a thing where you, where they try to manufacture love at first sight, basically, right. by like. It's usually like you bump into each other and someone drops their books and you pick it up and they look into each other's eyes and that's it. It's one of those. And it's just like, oh, you like books too. And then, you know, fast forward three years, three months and they're like married yeah. or whatever. But this got one's it. Just like, got it. This one was just like flames from the beginning. <laughs> and and at the end as well. Yeah, and at the end. Oh, like, oh, my God. <laughs> spoilers. Spoilers, spoilers. Meet you. Got it. All right. Makes sense. I just love like the way it unfolds. It's like it's really like an incredible introduction to those two characters. Well, I mean, I think the the way you, you dissected it is, you know, and I know you guys were kind of like ripping and joking back and forth but i mean I, I i thought that was a pretty great analysis of it you know it's like it's like it's like a dude who fundamentally wants to be vulnerable right but isn't allowed to be because of the nature of the era and place he exists in and here walks in someone who's like not talking to him like he's dracula or you know vlad he's just hey you're a dude and you have something i want and why are you not giving it to me with with but but expressed in a very kind and honest Right. I thought that was really interesting as a as a fan of the series and someone who's played like a lot of the games. First watching it, I was like, oh, they're they're starting a Castlevania three. That's interesting. The series jumps generations all the time. So starting at Castlevania three, that game kind of begins with like, oh, here's Dracula. He's evil. You gotta kill him. Right. And then <laughs> it's only once it gets to kind of like the later PlayStation era games that they start having that like the the concept of of his his wife is introduced. I think yeah. I think in Symphony of the Night, and they start kind of backfilling that. And I just really liked how you guys kind of took a lot of the elements from across all of the the Castlevania games. Um, and kind of brought some of the things to Castlevania Three that that were really nicely developed in the later games. We appreciate that. Now, thank you. You know, I think one of the things that that makes Dracula so alluring for me is, especially through the course of this this show, is is like when immortality intersects with suffering. Mm. Mm. Um, it, instantly, it instantly adds this layer of depth that no human has ever felt. But we can imagine what that would be like, right? That would that that would be, it would be like trapped trapped in the worst day forever. Yeah, I'm cynical enough at 33, so I can't even imagine. <laughs> but even even that statement, you said I'm 33 because you're counting you're counting your age right. because time 
has meaning for you. Now imagine if time had no meaning, you just, you know, it was just infinite. Oof. Then you'd just be cynical, period. Did you decide to start with three or or at least the kind of the, the bones of the plot of three for a, a specific reason rather than starting earlier, starting later? I don't know. I, I mean, I really dug three. And don't get me wrong, you know, I mean, I, I, I firmly believe and I think if, if we wanted to get into hypotheticals, there's an infinite number of permutations of ways that mm-hmm. one could adapt Castlevania. What game, what time period you started. You know, I think three had a cool cast of characters. You know, I think uh, I think Alucard is obviously a fan favorite, but he's also one of my favorite characters in the, in the entire series. Yeah, he's definitely one of the more interesting characters as, as someone whose father is Dracula. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We can and his all name is Dracula to... spelled backwards. <laughs> right, yeah. that, that's that's kind of very, yeah. Just do Junior. Just do Dracula Junior. That's weird, but yeah, you know, the just him having. We've all disagreed with our fathers at one sure. point or another. So that's a that's a pretty easy dynamic, and and uh, you know, him spanning a, a few of the games is also you know makes him a, a good person to have as a kind of a pivotal character in the series. And if you guys, you know, hopefully, I'd love to see eight seasons of this yeah. where you guys just jump between all the generations and, and maybe maybe he'd be around for a bunch of that. Question for those of you that, you know, like actually, I guess this is for you, Matt. How much how much different is like Trevor Belmont in the game versus how he was in the... Well, there isn't a whole lot of room for character development in an original Nintendo Entertainment <laughs> System <laughs> game. I'll, I'll say that. Uh <laughs> You know, if he, if he had made more of an appearance in maybe like a later stage Castlevania game, I'd be able to speak to that more. But uh, I can say that he had a whip um, <laughs> and he looked cool. So it's pretty spot on <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Okay. So, I mean, like, I, I guess I was saying he didn't appear in any of the, the later iterations of the game or? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that Trevor was, was Castlevania 3. And then there's just a ton of other Belmonts and, and like oh, okay. non-Belmonts that, that show up at earlier times and later times and the the whole timeline of Castlevania is so scattered they jump into the future for one game and then they're back at the beginning it's mm. it's really one of the more difficult series to keep in your head like where the timeline is and right. which yeah. Belmont was whose yeah. grandfather and you know <laughs> things like that yeah, yeah and, and at- Addy, that's that's something that Jason and I have talked about with other video game adaptations because it seems like often they go to one extreme or the other where either they're they're trying to catch you up on the complete lore of the series and it's, you know, a, a 90 minute movie and they're trying to pack in 10, 20 hour games into that exposition or they're doing like constant Easter eggs and references and winks to people who are watching who might have played the games and it's like oh here's this moment here's this mechanic that you remember from the games here it is in movie form or whatever and it seems like it's often very heavy-handed and that's in there here and i just don't recognize it because i haven't played the games much but it doesn't seem as if it is it just sort of starts and i didn't feel like i was out of my depth like i had to play the games to understand what was going on and it didn't seem like you were that interested in just stuffing it with references to the series as much as you and and Warren were interested in in writing an interesting TV show. I appreciate that, man, uh, and I and I know Warren does too. Thank you, uh, just straight up thank you. You know, I, I I don't disagree with anything you said about other video game adaptations. You know, I think my take on it is 
you need to just tell a three-act story or a concise story or just a story with a beginning, middle, and an end set in the world, you know, that's kind of where people get tripped up sometimes where they're just literally retelling the story of the game, mm-hmm. like literally beat for beat the story of the game. That right. that doesn't work. Uh, and sometimes you get the other version of it, which, which you guys very accurately pointed out, where it's, well, okay, it's loosely inspired by, but we're going to create a bunch of new characters who aren't even in the game. Yeah. And it, it's about these new characters. And you're like, okay, that would be like making Spider-Man, but then not having Spider-Man in it and then having this guy in a suit of armor named Armor Man. <laughs> <laughs> I would not be disappointed, uh, though, yeah. if Armor Man showed up, but I get what you're Armor saying. Armor walking around downtown <laughs> Manhattan. So, yeah, 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 no, no, yeah, so totally. We got the right Spider-Man. Kids love it, kids love it, kids love it, but we're going to give kids Armor Suit Guy, dude. <laughs> it, it, it's just been interesting as a fan of, you know, I'm, I'm 32. I mean, you, I know you said you're 33, so I'm, I'm 32, right? So we're all in this generation where we grew up with video games as part of our lives. Mm-hmm. And this language organically unfolded for us through the course of our childhoods and young adulthood, right? We are the generation that saw video games go from being this super niche thing to become more and more and more mainstream to the point where, like, today, the video game industry arguably is bigger, more prominent, and more culturally relevant and resonant than the movie industry so we saw that happen in our lifetime so there's there's kind of this organic understanding of the mechanics of these things that the 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 dna of these games and these franchises that another generation just doesn't have because they weren't exposed to the same language as we were Mm. Mm mm-hmm and is that part of the reason why the uh, like with the art direction of it, with the the kind of uh, almost throwback style of how it looks, the hand drawn, was that also an attempt to kind of tap into that you know language that maybe you felt was getting lost? Because to, to me, pairing that style with you know these games that have been in my life since as long as I can remember, uh, it kind of like heightened each of them for me. Pairing those two kind of nostalgic elements together. Mm. I mean, yeah, hand-drawn, I mean, the, the, the hand-drawn art form, the fact that it's a hand-drawn animation, the fact that it, like, went away and is a dying industry, it's not even an industry anymore. It's, it's like, it's almost, a, it is a novelty. Not almost, it mm. is a novelty. It's like a typewriter. Um, yeah. The fact that it went away is crazy to me. And what's decimated it has been the advent of CGI animation, which is dope in and of itself, right? There's nothing, I mean, Wally, I would argue, Wally, in my book, is the best post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie ever. Pixar kills it. DreamWorks Animation kills it most of the time. But the fact that that led to an entire other genre of animation disappearing to me was just so bizarre. Because I'm with you. Like I grew up with this 2D hand-drawn aesthetic. I loved it. By the way, I grew up in, in Hong Kong. So it was very prevalent in my childhood slash my life to talk about like the hand-drawn style or whatever just specifically to nerd out for a second the part where he's fighting the stone-eyed cyclops like uh that was like i think that was like the first scene that i was just like oh wow okay this is (laughs) like this is i started thinking about like the kinetic animation of like i don't know like naruto fight scenes or i think in that moment i was specifically thinking about the boondocks episode where huey fights the hatocracy or whatever <laughs> like it's just like it's just very fun and like it's very glamorous and flashy and it's i really enjoyed it 
I just had to say that. I don't know if I, <laughs> there was a question in there. <laughs> no, man, I appreciate it. That, that fight, it's interesting that you bring up that fight scene particularly because we can imagine exactly what the live-action version of that fight scene would look like. Mm-hmm. And you can very easily imagine what the CGI animation style version of that fight scene would look like. Yeah. And I think we can all agree that it's the, it's the 2D hand-drawn version of it that's dope. It's just the colors pop. Yeah, I mean, that and you wouldn't get, like, CGI would be too rigid, like, in and live action, you would never be able to get somebody that's that good with a whip to pull right. a knife out of somebody's heart and then kick it into somebody else's eye. <laughs> uh, yeah. Right, and, and, the, and, the, and the Cyclops would clearly look like it was, it was made out of a computer. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and then you know Nick Cage with the with the wouldn't be able to just <laughs> point it out, and that would be like a huge thing in a you know in a in a production meeting, and then they'd be like, "Hey Nick, we're going to turn you into Dracula." We brought in this guy Channing Tatum to play Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then all of a sudden the distributors would get real mad, and the distributors would be like, "I, I don't understand." Channing Tatum and Nick Cage, we need more star power. We need more star power. And then next thing you know, you're, you're, you're in makeup trying to somehow make Gerard Butler look like Alucard. <laughs> Which he does not. Yeah, Which does he not. should be said. He does not. Have you guys seen this movie I, I, I did called The Voices? I haven't. I haven't. It came out 2014, played at Sundance. It stars Ryan Reynolds. And for the first 10 minutes, you think you're watching a rom-com? where he's fighting over Anna Kendrick and Gemma Arterton. At the same time, there's this Dr. Doolittle aspect to it where he's got a cat and a dog that talk to him when he goes home, and all these animals are talking to him. So you think he's like Dr. Doolittle, except you quickly realize that he's not. He's actually crazy, and he's off his meds, and the animals start telling him to kill everybody, and you realize it's a serial killer movie, and you're just in the head of a serial killer. (laughs) (laughs) The cat has Gerard Butler's accent. <laughs> That's good casting. It's oh, better than him doing Alucard by a, by a mile. Right. I mean, that flattening iron would get a lot of work. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> well, so you talked about how these things can kind of get pushed and pulled and distorted unrecognizably when other parties get involved. So, I mean, how is it working with you? Obviously, you you have a track record. You've been a pretty prolific producer so are you saying i like castlevania so i'm gonna go and see if netflix will make a castlevania show and then i'm gonna see if warren will write it is it that smooth are people coming to you and saying we want to make the show how does that typically work and and now you've got the assassin's creed adaptation and works with with ubisoft so what is the usual route to getting these things made well there really isn't a usual you know, I think the world is, I mean, I, I think we can all agree that the world has changed very dramatically over the last few years mm-hmm. for a bunch of reasons. One of them is the internet has become more and more prevalent and continues to become more and more prevalent. The advent of streaming technology has become more and more streamlined to the point where it is eclipsing old media by the minute. The archetypes and the paradigms of like movie stardom and stardom have completely changed. Right. I mean, if you go back to like the 90s and a movie came out, like the only person that anyone wanted to talk to or cared about was, oh, who's the guy on the poster? I want to talk to him because he made the movie. Mm-hmm. The Internet has effectively peeled the curtain back. So so now there's a level of, of depth that gets covered that wasn't part of the ecosystem 10, 15, 20 years ago or even really five years ago. 
So, yeah, the process is always different. Now, for, for this show, I don't know if people know this or not, but we were going to we were gonna Kickstarter it for a while. Oh. Like, straight up. I was going, like, well, I'm, and I'm not one of those dudes who really, like, pays attention to I, – I, I don't pay attention to box office or game sales or any of that stuff, right? I like what I like, and, you know, I want to work on this stuff and adapt the stuff and really preserve the stories of the things that resonated with me as a fan, right? So, like, I only knew that I dug it. I didn't know how the rest of the world would react. I didn't even know that the rest of the world would, would dig it in this style, but the way that they did. And I don't know if you guys have seen my the Power Rangers short I did with uh, with Doki Khan. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So that kind of created that was supposed to be like my exit. Like I was leaving Hollywood after that. Like I, I was doing that, and I'm like, I'm done. I'm out. I don't want to kind of make these bloated blocks. I, I I just saw media becoming more and more homogenized as time was going on, and I really didn't want to be a part of that. So you know, it was Power Rangers, and then I was out. That was kind of around the time when all this was coming together. So Uh I didn't know what impact that short would ultimately have on on my career or my ability to get things made or the people's perception of me. Because I effectively, I mean, I guess what's your your guys' perception of what happened after that that viral video? Because it was super controversial. Was it? I mean, I just felt like, well, first of all, it made a huge splash just because of the tone of it. Really was a great reimagining of something that I think was important to a lot of people's growing up. And reimagined it in a great way, um, but I didn't think there was. Was there really a? I didn't feel like there was a controversy. I felt I've, like people were like, "Wow, this is yeah, dope." I mean, like really, I was just like, "Wow, this confirms that the Black Power Ranger was the best one." <laughs> right, and now make this <laughs> like, make this two hours, and yeah, where can I watch it, it? Make more of it, please. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting you said because because I guess I mean you guys are approaching it as fans who are like, yeah. "Whoa, I want more of this," right? But behind the scenes, people were like who made this? Then they're like, oh, wait, Addy, you made it. Why did you make this? What's wrong with you? What's your problem? This is within the within the Hollywood ecosystem, right? right. Like, I mean, Haim Saban nearly went to war with me. Wow. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, TMZ was covering it. I mean, I, I had literally, like, people following me around and stuff. I entered that, like, weird nebulous, like, zone of, of people who get followed around all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, over a fan film. And and this, by the way, wasn't my first fan film. I mean, I'd made like, it was like my sixth fan film. Uh, and then I released a James Bond one the week after. And that really pissed people off. But, but yeah, war, you're really going to war and then refusing to work on the official movie. And just, you know, it, it was, in my mind, I was like, I've been ostracized from Hollywood. Wow. Or I was like, that's probably what's going to happen. And I truthfully didn't care. But I guess what it did was it created this like massive rift where old media people were like, this guy's insane. <laughs> and new media people were like, we want to work with him. If that, that makes sense. I mean, that's my analysis of it. I don't really know because I don't really think through these, these things. I just kind of, I'm, I'm focused on being in my creative space and just creating stuff. But yeah, that's my analysis of how it, how it all played out. And I talked to you for a story back when Castlevania was announced. I was sort of wondering whether TV would turn out to be the natural home for video game adaptations. And at the time, I was asking you whether you felt any pressure to make Castlevania good, you know, over and above the the normal pressure that you would feel for any project, but just as kind of a proof of concept that 
we can adapt a video game and it could be good. And at the time, it sounded like that wasn't really something that you had thought a whole lot about and thinking about it when I brought it up seemed to be somewhat intimidating to you, but I think you've you've pulled it off. And so now you have the Assassin's Creed series lined up. So are you thinking of this as a long-term pattern that you can repeat? Like there's this whole wealth of source material out there that maybe hasn't been mined and you are going to be the guy who makes good video game adaptations for TV? And is that a model that you want to pursue and recreate if you can? I don't really have a model. I've really never had a model. Because for a while it was like, oh, he's the guy who does like R-rated comic book stuff with yeah. uh, the Punisher, that Punisher Dirty Laundry, which is well-received, Judge Dread or Dread rather, Venom Short. And as douchey and artsy-fartsy as this is going to sound, like I'm not super attached to labels or a business model or anything like that. No, I'm, I'm just the storyteller, you know, and if something resonates with me, then I'm going to do 110 percent. I'm going to I'm going to give myself making sure that whatever comes out of that process is the best possible thing that I, that I don't look back at it and be like, oh, man, this could have been so much better. And that's really it. Right. I mean, Castlevania, I think ultimately we can deconstruct as to why people are digging it and why it works. And that could be an endless discussion. But the bottom line is. The reason it worked is because it was made by fans for fans. Mm -hmm. That's it. And the way that this first release was structured where it's four episodes and then the next season will be twice as long. I mean, it, I think we all kind of were left wanting more, which I guess is good, but it almost feels like it's ready to really start going and then it's over this first uh, <laughs> batch of episodes was that you need to, to prove that that you deserve a, a full run that sort of thing or did you want to not get over ambitious with this and and sort of have a, a no 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 it's not it's not a, it's, i would completely reframe that concept right because i look at this show it's just a really long story it's a really long movie right and, and yeah and in those four episodes, we could have literally told the entire story in four episodes. Mm -hmm. The way I see it is there's only one platform now. Everyone's watching the same thing on, on one device. The only variables are once you figure out what the story is, what your story is, is how much time you need to tell it and how much money do you need to tell that story. That's it. This wasn't a trial run or dipping our toes in the water. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything like that. It's just, this is the pace at which, at least I felt, that I wanted to tell the story at. Because mm -hmm. this won't be part of the conversation when season two drops. Right. Yeah. Right? Because, like, when season two comes out, it'll just exist as now 12 episodes. No one's going to go, oh, why was season one four? It's like, okay, well, so now there's, so there's 12 episodes of this, 12 chapters of this story. Mm -hmm. Okay, how many more chapters do I get of this story? What I am hell-bent on is cutting out any fat for the stake just that needs to be there for a, for a runtime or for a, an episode order or for like arbitrary reasons. You know, those like the monster of the week. I mean, there is a monster of the week version of this show. I yeah. wouldn't come out of me, but you know, it's just like every week. Oh, right. this week we have Frankenstein. Oh, Trevor, how are we going to stop him? <laughs> and then you like learn something at the end. And Sife was like, see, if you just work together, we can stop Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> like, like there is that version of the show. And, you know, someone could could have made that, and I'm not saying it'd be bad. I'm not passing judgment. It's just that's that's just not where my mind goes to. You know, I, I, I the beauty of streaming technology is everything's just on a playlist. It's just on a playlist there forever. Mm -hmm. And the moment you get caught up on, oh well, well, 
you know, season one is 20 episodes, then how much of that is really the core story? Mm-hmm. And, and how much of it is just there because as, as just pure filler content? I mean, some of these shows, especially some of the network shows, I remember watching the recap videos. You know how, like, um, they'd be like, oh, and this is what happened in season one and two and three, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to catch you up. And you, you'd watch it and you're like, this is better than the show. this is literally better than the show because you're fast forwarding through all the beats of the story and they're happening in the span of 30 minutes versus dealing with like oh trevor see we we just work together well as a fan i really appreciate the 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 pacing that you guys have have managed to achieve and and it really leaves so much space for character development and just raises the, the the stakes and uh I mean, the fact of the matter is that in Castlevania 3, you know, I don't want you to, you know, have to reveal any spoilers or anything about the next season, but there's a character in Castlevania 3 that isn't in season one of your show. And I don't want (laughs) to... Maybe I'm on the verge of a spoiler here. I don't know. I don't know what you guys have (laughs) planned for season two, but it's just exciting to me that, you know, you didn't feel the need, whether that character exists or not in the future, to, to push that character into these first four episodes have any of you guys seen pirates of the caribbean the new one yes i have unfortunately (laughs) (laughs) i have not i have not seen the last i don't know how many (laughs) there have been a lot i I was making it making a joke but there was like too many there's like too many logic jumps (laughs) Okay. He's referring to Grant, who's a pirate, called yeah. me to pirate the Caribbean joke. It didn't work at all. I apologize. Just... I was referring to Grant. Okay, yeah. Cut that out of the podcast. <laughs> Trim the fat. <laughs> why, if you go through my entire filmography, it's always like angry anti-heroes with weapons. Nice. There's mm-hmm. no comedy anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> my humor is always acting. About it. <laughs> On that note, I think I'll I'll just end by asking you about the violence of the show because before we called you, I th- we were all sort of chatting and recounting our favorite bloodshed, and there is a lot to choose yeah. from. It's, it's <laughs> oh my so god, there's so much dark stuff in there. <laughs> there really is, and and it's you know it's like a, a stylish sort of violence, and I think we largely enjoyed it. And I, I wonder just how you decided on how graphic you wanted to get oh wow that's a deep question i i i'm gonna answer your deep question with a very shallow answer sure okay which is you guys have seen the power ranger short right yes yeah yeah you're talking about it. you guys saw the punisher short yes yeah you guys have seen dread mm-hmm. yes <laughs> you're noticing like a, a common thread <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> brutal yeah no, i was i was hoping i just listing movies like, i talked about, I... about a ryan reynolds rom-com <laughs> That's your thing. <laughs> it's just your thing. Right here, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I uh, yeah, my theory was that it was it was maybe just like because you made Dracula into this like complex character in the first in the first episode that maybe this was just like, all right, don't feel bad for Dracula though. Right. Yeah. <laughs> look at what he did to all the townspeople. But that is a much better answer, I gotta say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Guys, like, I can't thank you enough for, uh, A, having me on the show, and B, just enjoying the show, you know, and, and having a, a really meaningful discussion about it. When, whenever you make anything uh, or you have a hand in anything, right, because it, there was a small army of people who ultimately worked on the show, and whenever you, you have a hand in anything or make anything, just people 
watching it and then discussing it and, and breaking it down, it's, as an artist, that's the ultimate reward. That's literally the ultimate reward. So if I ever went like quiet while you guys were talking at any point, it was, it was more just me being like, oh, wow. <laughs> you guys like legitimately dug the show. Well, so thanks. Thanks for really doing your part to restore the good name or, or establish the good name for the first time of video game adaptations. They don't have to be terrible. Appreciate it. So you can catch Castlevania on Netflix now. You can find Addy on Facebook at facebook.com slash bootleguniverse. And we appreciate it. Good luck with the future work, video game related and otherwise. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks, Matt and Micah, also. Oh, my yeah, pleasure. of course. And we'll be right back to discuss speedrunning. So as those of you who enjoy speedrunning know, Summer Games Done Quick wrapped up last week. It's a, a week-long event. Happens twice a year. It's a speedrunning convention of sorts that raises money for charity this year. It broke its own record, as it seems to, every time it's held with 1.7 million or possibly more once the final totals are, are tallied, generated for Doctors Without Borders by people watching speedrunners and pledging. And we wanted to talk to someone who really enjoys this event and follows it very closely. He wrote an article for Paste. The headline said, Games Done Quick is a Modern Day Olympics. It's Jacob Aller. Hey, Jacob. Hey. Hey, Jacob. So how did you get into Games Done Quick? And if there's uh, some more backstory of the event that you think it would be helpful for people to know, feel free to share that too. Sure. So this event started as kind of an outcropping of some speedrunning forums. It was a bunch of people who posted game VODs, like videos of them completing these games really fast. And it started off with like Quake and Doom, stuff like that. And as it got more sophisticated, they had meetups and that turned into this charity event. And mm -hmm. I got into it because a friend showed me on Twitch. Like I watched for like Hearthstone streamers, like basic stuff like that. But then they were like, oh, people are playing like Donkey Kong 64 or, or Super Mario 64, like stuff that I grew up with. And so seeing them just like break these games to pieces is something that it gives me a lot of satisfaction. Yeah. So how do you follow this event? Because there is a schedule release. It's just constant for a week long into the, the early hours of the morning. There are so many games involved. How do you decide when to watch or, or how to watch or what you want to watch? Well, I think the beauty of Games Done Quick is that it does go, it's a marathon and it goes forever and ever and ever yes. over this weekend. And much like the Olympics do where you can just turn it on and you're like, oh, I guess I'll watch curling for a little while because that seems fun and America's in it and I love America. You can turn on Games Done Quick and you're like, I saw this game once at a blockbuster. Like, I'll watch these guys who are super, super good at it. So mm -hmm. I just tune into whatever. And how much is your enjoyment of watching speedrunning? How much is that dependent on your experience with the game? Because there's a, a different level, I think, that you can appreciate a run on if you have played that game, if you have some experience with it yourself it's it's even easier maybe to tell how much better these people are at everything than we are but do you have a preference for that i mean i think i watched this is the first year i watched mario kart be just busted up and that was super crazy to watch people like clip through walls of these tracks that i've played you know hundreds and hundreds of times that i played as a little kid and played the other day because i still have my n64 
And so watching them just like break them is like watching a dude run however many meters in like a couple seconds. Like it just seems like humans shouldn't do this. Yeah. But then you can watch like a game that you've never seen and it becomes something much more like trippy. Like it becomes something that you're like, I don't know what's going on, but it looks really good and it's going really fast. It becomes like a visualizer almost. One of the things that, I mean, I I think speedrunning is one of the most fascinating subcultures of gaming, period. And the thing that I just really love about, especially the Ocarina of Time runs, is that there was a new damage boost discovered that allows players to skip parts of the game even faster. And this is just, like, incredible for a game that is this old for these things to keep getting discovered. I mean, for you, what is what is the part of this whole subculture that interests you the most? I mean, the community, like every game has its own little subculture. They've got their little discord chats. They've got their own little forums. And so everybody works together to like crack into the code. And like, it's like hackers. There's teams of people who are like computer scientists practicing in their basements and stuff. And so when you discover one thing that like might shave a couple seconds off of a run, a couple dozen people are all trying their best to see how they can optimize it. And I think that's kind of fascinating. And do you have a, a favorite type of run when it comes to like length? Do you do you like a really long a long one that requires a, a lot of planning and it's maybe more about the strategy and the route you take than your quick twitch timing, that sort of thing? Or do you like a shorter one? Or do you like ones that I saw Summit at this year's event where it was like almost a physical obstacles were introduced where someone was playing co-op portal by himself (laughs) like on two input devices at the same time so do you have a a favorite i mean they were doing tetris where two players had one controller like one person was moving the blocks and one person was flipping them that looked insane but i i don't know i like the ones that either are like 15 minutes they're like i bust through this game i break it like crazy like i'm playing half-life and i beat the whole thing in 10 minutes that's pretty fun because you just you just get to see how crazy and abstract these like hacks make the game and then there's stuff like pokemon where it's like oh it's still two and a half hours but we're doing a few specific things that we can skip over things and i I think i prefer the longer ones when i have some experience with the game in your piece you talk about the fraught optics of chat having chat visible either you know moderated or heavily moderated or whatever in these kind of events um there's no paucity of events that have been marred by just crazy shit popping up in the in the chat what is the future of that obviously like chat windows and mics being unmuted and kind of like gamer chatter is an important part of like like the culture of gaming but how does this events like this move forward when there's just so much toxicity all the time through these various communication channels and like and how does how does gaming move past that i mean i think games done quick is doing it better than almost anybody i've seen like league of legends trash overwatch is doing a pretty good job but like a lot of the competitive video game scenes are a lot of dudes they cater to games that are played by a lot of dudes and they don't really market to the women who play these games or you know intersect whatever Anybody who plays the games, it's mostly white dudes. And then Games Done Quick is more like, I think they are policing it in such a way that it is open to everybody. And and like specifically by making it open to all ages, they put some like self-imposed barriers on themselves. They're like, oh, we can't have anybody swearing because we want kids to enjoy this. And so if people like understand that mentality, they're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be like a racist homophobe out 
around where kids might be. <laughs> but like when people are like League of Legends, they're like, no kids here, only fucking like real gamers here. And like, I don't know. I think that mentality is not in games done quick, which is cool. Mm-hmm. And can you describe like for people who don't follow this, like the kind of commitment and skill and dedication it requires to be a successful speedrunner like even just the endurance aspect of it like people who were doing you know eight hour final fantasy runs and they can't move (laughs) while they do that which is probably not great for your health hopefully they like walk around a bit between runs every second counts every millisecond counts so you can't eat you can't drink you can't go to the bathroom during this run yeah i mean these are people who like if you go onto their personal Twitch streams, this is all they do, like six yeah. hours a day. They're just constantly like, oh, well, there's this one part in Half-Life where I have to get a frame-perfect jump, and if I hit this jump, I like shoot up 100 feet in the air and I skip all these puzzles. And if I don't hit it, I suck, and it's like 10 minutes longer. And so they spend all day like perfecting this one jump, and it's like it's a crazy amount of dedication to just one single thing and it's it's more than i've seen out of like any professional sport like you can go to the batting cages all you want but like you're still moving around you're still using different muscles this is like one aspect one pixel of one video game and it's insane were there any interesting records set this year or any runs that were particularly memorable to you that we haven't mentioned uh one that i thought was pretty good was the heart gold soul silver run and that was because it just everything went wrong (laughs) Uh-huh. Like the guy was supposed to manipulate all of the encounters. So like when he went to the grass, he would encounter certain things. And like when he was fighting his rival, his Pokemon would be a certain way and his starter would have certain stats. And he didn't get any of that right. And so he just had to like improvise almost the entire way. And he beat the Elite Four and he was doing all the stuff. And he had only had allotted like two hours and 40-ish minutes. And so we got to like the final, final boss, which is like Ash catch him on top of a goddamn mountain. And he's like, all right, I'm like 40 levels under leveled. Let's see what he can do. And he has like, because you watch the 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 VOD and it, you have like one minute remaining. You're like, oh, my God, is he going to do it? And he tries like three times and he just gets one shot every single time. And the crowd is going crazy. And then he's just like, well, sometimes you just can't do it. And then it's over. And I, <laughs> I love it. Um, I was trying to under, uh, like explain what speedrunning is to someone recently, and who has really no idea about like plays video games, but doesn't really understand like the almost scientific approach that a lot of these speedrunners take to that has been built up over years and years of study, like real study of glitches of the way uh, shapes interact in the in the game engine crazy stuff and i the best metaphor i could come up with is it's kind of like skateboarding and the way that it re- like repurposes the surfaces of modern life but it's digital like it's virtual life it repurposes virtual space for completely for a completely different activity if you were going to explain speedrunning and really try and sell it as as an interesting thing to watch to someone who had no idea about it how how would you explain it to someone i think the skateboarding is really cool i hadn't thought of it like that but Every time I watch it, I think of this is what hacking montages would look like. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly it. Like directors understood what hacking was. Like <laughs> there is a physical element to it. It's the closest thing to the Matrix to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's also a reason that like the games that are in Games Done Quick are games that have been out for like over a decade because it takes that long to break into them and like figure out all the numbers and figure out what shapes do what and where we can, you know, where are the insecurities and the the weaknesses. And since you drew the Olympics comparison in your piece, I mean, do you think it has the same 
accessibility. There are some Olympic sports where if you watch curling or something like that, you might not understand what's going on. You might have a basic idea. But do you think that someone who is not a devoted video gamer could watch Games Done Quick the same way that they might put the Olympics on just in the background and and be able to understand what's going on or be able to appreciate it? Or do you think it takes more of a, a specialized knowledge and, and familiarity? I think they're doing a something to kind of bridge that gap by having the same kind of commentators that they have in the Olympics where it's like, we are also experts in this sport. And so you can turn yeah. on curling and you're going to need some explaining on like, what, what does this shuffling thing mean? What are the circles and who are all these guys and why they have brooms? But like, there are all their like gateway sports that you can appreciate, you know, like archery or something like, oh, it went in the middle. Like I got it. Or, you know, you <laughs> right. see Tetris, you're like, oh, that guy's clearing all the blocks. This guy's good. So there are yeah. ones that are more visually accessible, but everybody's explaining it in a pretty good way. Some casters are better than others, but I think that'll also kind of get groomed. Can you describe what the commentary is like? Because things are happening so fast and a lot of it is so subtle. It's a frame here or there that it's hard to identify in real time. So what is the commentary like? So commentary usually oscillates between like in-joke cracking and like, oh, this part's pretty crazy. Like, and then they just kind of refer to parts of the game that they have practiced multiple, multiple times. And then it goes into like overdrive where they start dropping like M&M bars trying to explain all of this crazy stuff that's happening as it's happening. And most of the time it'll happen first. Then they'll explain like, oh, in order to do this, he had to run into this and he had to use this menu in a particular way and that breaks the game. And then they'll go into maybe a little bit more detail, but it's usually after the fact appreciation. So you have to do a little bit of retconning in your brain. Mm -hmm. Are there any games that you sensed have become more prominent over time in, in your history watching Games Done Quick events? Have some games ascended and, and descended in terms of just how many people are trying to whittle down the times? I mean, I think Ocarina of Time is one of the big ones. And I think it's yeah. just because of the sheer popularity of the game that people play it so much. Mm -hmm. But there's also been like some strides and people uh, shaving some time off of it. Some new ones that I saw that have that have kind of been played more is, uh, oh, Jesus, what's a game called? Super Hot? Yep. Yeah, yeah, great game. So that, that game is pretty crazy. I saw people playing that. And there's a game that's just six V's in a row. V, 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 give or take a V. <laughs> people were like blazing through that game. And that seemed like one that could really stick around because it's very simple. The only mechanic is you can flip your Y axis. Like, so your character's standing on the ground, you press a button, he's standing on the ceiling. That's the only thing. And mm. so it's just like a little maze that you can do. And people were going crazy on that game. But I think classic N64 games, Chrono Trigger was a big one. Tetris is always huge. Yep. Tetris, they like had four hours of setup for this one because they bring in arcade machines. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. They like shove the, like they basically push an entire arcade into this auditorium and then the best Tetris players in the world just like go crazy for, you know, eight minutes at a time. What, what are the basic components to uh, a good speedrun, a compelling speedrun to watch beyond just like the, the fastness, obviously, that the gamer completes their run in? But like, I, as I was saying before, like, I just love the scientific aspect of it and just like the, the relentless hacking and cracking that goes into it. Um, but for you, what, like what, what to you, what are what are the what are the components of a great speedrun? I mean, I think a, a game that looks good, like you can't, like, I don't, first person shooter games are, they suck to speedrun because like you don't get to experience right. the environment. You don't get to relate anything unless you're playing a first person shooter. It sucks to watch. But like I saw like a Banjo-Kazooie run 
that was really fascinating because not only was is the music great and it's a fun game to watch and kind of be in that world because it's kind of goofy and cartoonish, but the guys talking about it were not only very kind of amiable and, and well-spoken, but they were like, oh yeah, and this one part that's coming up here. So usually you have to do this and they'd explain how the level usually works. And then they said, but instead uh, we found out that the doors, instead of being contained just within what the door looks like, they programmed it so it extends infinitely above where the door is and infinitely below where the door is. So all we have to do is to get somewhere within the general area of the door and it loads the next zone. Hmm. So like that kind of stuff where they give examples of like, well, this is how you play it normally. And this is how we totally broke it. I think you need that in order to kind of reach a wider audience. And how much does the personality of the player come into play compared to, say, streamers or esports players who are huge world famous stars in large part because of their skill, but also because they have some kind of compelling background or personality or commentary? Does that also apply to speedrunners? Are there followings in some cases as large, or is this still more of a, a niche community? I think there are some streamers that have larger followings just because they have maybe bigger personalities or have been around uh, for a little longer, like a Tetris streamer named Proto Magical Girl kind of moved from competitor to caster in a, in a pretty natural way. And I think it's because she's very well-spoken and has kind of a bubbly personality. But the difference between, I think, regular Twitch streamers and speedrunners is like positivity because mm-hmm. you like inherently in speedrunning, you're going to screw up a lot. You're going to do things that don't work. And in order for that to be compelling to watch or to listen to, you have to have somebody who's not phased by that. And a lot of streamers like will get notoriety because like, oh man, this guy rages so hard. He's hilarious. And that's, yeah. that sucks. You don't want that infecting an event that is totally set towards achieving something for its own sake. Like streamers are competitive and angry and there's a lot of tension built up into that. But I don't know. I think positivity yeah. is probably the best one. Yeah. And from what I've read, like going on tilt in a speed run is just like ruinous. Right. <laughs> like, it's just I mean, over. <laughs> right. You just might as well. Yeah. Like in any kind of competition, whether it's player versus player or player versus clock, it can be. But successful speed running depends so much on these precise movements and planning. And if you are stewing over some mistake you made, it's going to just throw off everything else you're you're trying to do. So evidently it can just like dramatically change your results if you are prone to kind of going off the rails when something doesn't go well. Right. Like nobody wants to watch a like a professional I'm trying to think of a good metaphor here, like a dart thrower, and every time he like doesn't hit a bullseye, he like <laughs> storms off in like his mom's <laughs> basement. Like that sucks. You want somebody who's like, nah, better luck next time, or he like talks about how the throwing angle was off and that's why he didn't hit the dartboard in a certain way. Like, I don't know, that's way cooler than just seeing a dude get pissed for no reason. For yeah. something that ultimately we all know doesn't super matter. Mm-hmm. Well, so the next incarnation of Games Done Quick is Awesome Games Done Quick in January of next year. I guess that would be your Winter Olympics. So if you haven't paid attention to GDQ up to this point, you can check it out then. You can find out more about Games Done Quick at gamesdonequick.com. And you can find Jacob on Twitter at Jacoboller, O-L-L-E-R. And we appreciate it. Thanks for coming on, Jacob. Thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. Okay, so that brings us to the end of today's episode. If you want more Jason in your life, you can see him on Twitter live on Sunday night after Thrones premiere. Talk to Thrones. You will have to, on the fly, generate intelligent things to say about Game of Thrones. Good Uh, luck. Thank you. The night is dark and it is full of terrors. I can (laughs) confirm that. 
<laughs> All right. We'll be back next week. Bye.